Oh Lord Jesus, Lamb of God, we come before you humbled by your gracious and condescending work. The very incarnation is a great act of condescension and then you are going to the cross on our behalf as the Lamb of God, our substitute, the one who replaces us and gives us eternal life in ways that we don't even begin to deserve, we give you glory and recognize that we simply need to worship you. We pray, Father, that in these moments in which the word of God is unfolded, that you would be present in this place, drawing this community together in love and affection for one another, and leading us in mission to do the work that you call us to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let me ask you a question. What do you think is the least favorite thing for a Christian to do? Well, that raises all kinds of possibilities. Lots of things come to mind, don't they? We'd all prefer, for instance, to begin with, not to be martyrs, at least if we could help it. Now, there were plenty of Christian martyrs over the centuries all across the world, and there are plenty of Christian martyrs today in various parts of the world, brothers and sisters who even this week have been murdered for their faith, sometimes by official, officials of various states in which they live, which are antagonistic to the things of Christ, and sometimes by others who act on their own and who have great animosity toward Christianity, and their various governments do little or nothing to, to prevent it. So there are martyrs, and we'd like not to be one of them if we could help it. We'd also not like to suffer if we could help it, and uh, I mean suffering for the faith, that is. Uh, short of becoming a martyr are those who find themselves tortured for Christ. Uh, such was the case of Richard Wurmbrand, a man of Jewish ancestry who became a, a Christian, and as a result he preached in bomb shelters and rescued Jews in World War II, but he provoked the ire of the Romanian government, which was communist, a communist regime in which he lived when he preached that communism and Christianity were incompatible. He was arrested by the regime, imprisoned for 14 years, and tortured as a result. We'd prefer not to be tortured if we could help it, wouldn't you agree? So certainly martyrdom and, and torturing are the things that we Christians would avoid if we could, if it were up to us. But most of us have not experienced those kinds of issues as Christians. And while it may be more and more difficult to be Christians in our nation as time goes on, at least than it used to be, most of us are not subjected to that kind of suffering. So I would propose to you this morning that the least favorite thing for most of us to do as Christians, the thing that most of us do actually experience from time to time that we detest and try to avoid as much as possible is waiting. That's right, waiting. We know that God has something for us to do, but not, not yet. It's not the right time. Sometimes, as you know, waiting has to do with our health. We have symptoms of one sort or another. Tests are done, but the results take days or even weeks, and, and then the results come back, and they're ambiguous or inconclusive, 
And then there are more tests and they're ordered. And again, we, we wait. Sometimes we're called in ministry, but the process can take a good bit of time for everything to unfold. That was kind of like the process that brought the gene and, and I here 10 years ago. We started this ministry, by the way, or our ministry here 10 years ago this February. And a lot of that time was spent uh, waiting. It took 10 months prior to our coming for all of that to transpire. And sometimes we couldn't even be sure God was calling us during those months, and, and then we couldn't even share some of these kinds of things with our friends, and so we, we waited. And waiting is one of the least favorite things for us Christians to do. So consider the disciples. Uh, they had experienced the most monumental emotional roller coaster one could ever imagine. They had wholly devoted themselves to this, this Jewish rabbi for three years of their lives, left everything behind and, and followed him. They, they really believed he was the Messiah. They, their hopes reached a zenith when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling messianic scriptures. The, the children and followers were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet in one short week, they had all turned against him, and prompted by the Jewish leaders, the crowds cried out against him, and the Romans crucified him, and their hopes were, were dashed. Until, that is, one of their women came running to them one Sunday morning and with a bizarre story about an empty tomb, and, and sure enough, this rabbi had risen, and he, he showed up in an upper room where they'd been hiding out for fear of the Romans, appearing through locked doors, of all things. And he did the same thing the following week through another locked door, appearing to these confused disciples, encountering for the first time after his resurrection, Thomas. Yes, that Thomas, the one we know of as Doubting Thomas, but we learned that he wasn't really doubting at that point. He was unbelieving Thomas because we learned that when we studied that passage, that Thomas was sure nothing could convince him that Jesus was alive and surely not the testimony of some crazed women. And even more, the disciples' own testimony was unconvincing to, to him. Uh, but there he was, and Thomas saw him, and Thomas worshipped. But then what? Then what? Well, a lot of people think that the Gospel of John should have ended right there, at the end of chapter 20. The final words of chapter 20, words that we have used over this course of our study in the Gospel of John, uh, say this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That should have been the last verse in the Gospel of John, right? That they think chapter 21 is an addition by a later editor, and that those two verses from a literary perspective will tie everything together with a nice bow. And that should be the end of it. But it's not the end of it, is it? There's a whole other chapter. And it's an important one. It's an important one, not because it teaches us so much about uh, Jesus, because we know a lot about Jesus already, but it teaches us much about what the church is to be like. What the true church what the church of all of those, as we've seen in our study of John, who have been born again is to be like. 
what the church is to be like that have seen and recognized and heard the voice of their shepherd and responded to it in faith. The church of those who have been taken out of the world by the Father and given to Christ as Jesus prayed. The church of those who have learned what it means to abide in Christ. That, that church, what is that church supposed to look like? And we learn about that in chapter 21. It's the church that, although confused and perplexed and afraid as they sequestered themselves in Jerusalem, nevertheless stuck together and did what Jesus told them to do, which is to go to Galilee, because in Galilee, the place where most of them began their journey with Jesus, they would again meet him. And so they went to Galilee, and then they got there, and then they waited. And they waited. And eventually, they got tired of twiddling their thumbs. They got tired of waiting. And so John 21 begins this way. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus called to them, children, do you have any fish? Remember, he was 100 yards away. They answered him, no. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went uh, aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and, and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, I believe that chapter 21 is an authentic part of the Gospel of John, in that it provides bookends for the book as a whole. Uh, chapter 1 is known, for instance, as the prologue of the Gospel of John. Verses 1 to 14 are known in particular as the prologue, but the whole of chapter 1 sets the stage for the entire Gospel, introduces the key characters in the story, just as any good piece of literature would do. And while chapter 21 is the epilogue of the story, 
coming back to those key characters, bringing closure to a number of their stories, tying up even more elements of the story than if we had just stopped at the end of chapter 20. The prologue, as you recall, opens with the story of the pre-incarnate Christ, with the word in the beginning, creating all things, the source of life, the life that is the light of men. And then he comes into the world as the incarnate Christ. And the epilogue is about the resurrected Christ, the Lord of the church who is with the church, meeting the church. He comes to direct the church. He helps the church to grow. He loves the church. And the people introduced in chapter 1 then make their final appearance in chapter 21. There were seven of them in all in chapter 21. There was Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin or Didymus, depending on your translation. Nathaniel of Cana was there. The sons of Zebedee, James and John, were there. And there were two others who are, are not named explicitly. And you'll recall that Simon Peter was introduced to us in, in chapter 1. Jana just read that passage a moment ago. And he was introduced to Jesus by his brother Andrew, uh, Nathaniel's only mention in the book of John is in chapter 1 and then finally in chapter 21. So that gives even further credence to the idea of them becoming bookends for the gospel as a whole. Nathaniel was introduced to Jesus by Philip, and he was the one who famously wondered, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Remember that? That Nathaniel shows up again here in chapter 21, makes us think immediately of its connection with chapter 1. John, the author of the gospel, is one of the sons of Zebedee. He was obviously there in the beginning, though not explicitly mentioned. It's likely that he's around in chapter 1 as Jesus began to collect his disciples and along with his brother James. The other disciples who are explicitly mentioned in chapter 1 are Andrew and Philip. I'm inclined to think that they are the two others of his disciples who are mentioned in chapter 21. Can't be absolutely sure of that, but it adds to the idea that the same group of people who were introduced in chapter 1 come back to conclude the story in chapter 21. That's the group that started with Jesus, and they are there in the end. Uh, the only other to find his way into chapter 21 who wasn't included in chapter 1 is Thomas. Yes, that Thomas. The doubter? Uh, no, no, no. The unbeliever, until he met Jesus in that second post-resurrection appearance, who then became a genuine worshiper of Jesus. Because evidently, to tie another loose end, Jesus had business to do with Thomas, just as he had business to do with, with Peter, restoring them restoring them to the community of faith after their veritable collapse of faith in the events leading up to and culminating in the crucifixion. So chapters 1 and 21 are bookends for the Gospel of John. Jesus, the pre-incarnate Son of God who becomes incarnate, and Jesus, the Lord of the church. And it's about the church made up of this ragtag bunch of fishermen and unbelievers and malcontents. James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way, can we miss that the church is made up of those who were doubters, deniers, and sinners of many varieties, but who have been brought to faith by Christ and have had their sins forgiven. These are the ones who do Christian work, normal people with all the failings we are heir to, not fictitious characters of superhuman faith and fortitude. 
Now, I don't know about you, but that ought to give us great encouragement, does it not? That even more to see what this represents, that this bunch that started with Jesus ended with, G with Jesus. And Jesus had lost none of them, just as he promised in John 17. Through thick and thin, they're all still there. And Jesus will not lose you either as you continue to trust in him. So if Jesus in the epilogue shows himself to be the Lord of the church, what sort of church is it that he leads? Well, the first thing that we observe is that he's leading the waiting church. The disciples have gone to Galilee as instructed, but then Jesus hadn't shown up. They were just hanging out. And what were they to think? It's not as if Jesus had given them some homework assignment. He simply had told them to go to Galilee and he would meet them there. Didn't tell them when or where exactly, but he did tell them to simply go there. That can be a little disconcerting, even disorienting, don't you think, this whole waiting business? And you know, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. We've all wondered what we're supposed to do while we don't have anything to do. Waiting can get you in trouble. Remember Saul. Saul was supposed to go to Gilgal after mustering the Israelite army against the Philistines and wait for Samuel there. But seven days had passed, the time Samuel said that he would come to meet him and lead them in worship. And Saul then got antsy, and he was tired of waiting for Samuel, and his troops got antsy too, and they started to go AWOL. Do you go, go AWOL when you get waiting? So without waiting for Samuel, Saul decided to offer the burnt offerings and the peace offerings by himself, which he was not authorized to do. And then Samuel shows up, and Saul is in big trouble. How much trouble was Saul in? Well, it cost him his kingdom. Waiting is hard. And if you don't wait well, you can get into big trouble. And then some Christians wait by really doing nothing, nothing at all, like some apocalyptic cults do. They quit their jobs, run off into the countryside, and sit there and wait for Jesus to return. But Jesus was, has never told us when he would return. In fact, he told the church that no one knows when he would return. But nevertheless, there are always these people that say, he's coming the day after tomorrow. I'm quitting my job and I'm going to go out on a hillside and wait for him. So to presume that you know that he's coming and you quit your job and go off to this hillside, well, that's just silly, isn't it? And worse, it's presumptuous. Because the fact of the matter is, you don't know what you're doing if you do that kind of thing. More often than not, we don't take one of those options. We're simply paralyzed in our waiting. We stop making plans. We don't make arrangements for the future, even as we might know how things might go. So in general, the church has trouble waiting. So what do these disciples, what does this church do under these circumstances while they wait? Well, Peter, the leader of the group, decides to do what he's always done. He's decided to go fishing. He's a fisherman by trade, and so are James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They're fishermen as well, so, so they decide to go fishing. Peter says, I'm going fishing. I'm tired of this waiting stuff. I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. So off they go. This is good, actually. When you don't know what to do, do what you know. 
That's not a bad idea, really. It's what, it's what they do. And fishing, by the way, is a valuable occupation. Human beings need to eat, and, and fish is good to eat. It's good for you. So for their own sakes and for the sake of others, they decide to go, they go fishing, and we should do the same thing. Do you know what we can do as long as it's a valuable vocation, legally and morally acceptable and appropriate, it contributes to the welfare of society, then, then go do it. Go ahead while you wait, while we wait for Jesus. And who knows, maybe Jesus will show up in the midst of what you're doing which is exactly what happens in this particular case. They've been out all night fishing, they've caught nothing, and this guy shows up on the shore, about 100 yards they are offshore, and he calls out to them. And he turns out that this guy is Jesus. Jesus shows up while they're waiting, but not while they're doing nothing. It's while they're doing what they know what they can do, which is fishing. So let me make an application here. There are lots of things to do at Shell Point. You've probably already learned that, haven't you? And in at least one respect, all of us here at Shell Point are waiting, aren't we? We're waiting for Jesus to return or we're waiting for us to go to Jesus, one or the other. But most of us, while we still can, do things while we wait. One of the things we can do while we wait is we go to things like Bible studies. The Village Church has lots of Bible study groups, a, a bunch of small groups, and, and one of the reasons we're still here and Jesus hasn't taken us to be with him is that God's not finished with us. He, he's not finished growing us. He wants us to continue in our study of the scriptures. The scriptures are the bread of life for us. He wants us to grow in our prayer lives. He wants us to engage in our prayer ministries more effectively. He wants us to encourage one another through those small groups. Those are all good things to do while we wait for Jesus. But they're not the only things we can do while we wait around here. We can all go fishing if we want. Now, there are people in this community who, who can and do go fishing, and they love to go fishing. And if you can do that, and you love to do that, you should do it while you wait for Jesus. Or you can go run your remote-controlled sailboats. There are people in Shell Point who love to do that, and if you can do that, you should do that while you wait for Jesus. And there are people who do woodworking in this community, and, and there are people in this community who love to do that. And if you love to do that and have some gifts to do that, you should do it while you wait for Jesus. You get the picture? So whatever it happens to be, maybe it's photography or, or it's pottery or maybe it's painting or maybe it's kayaking, maybe it's pickleball, maybe even golf. If you can do it, you should while you wait for Jesus. And here's the advantage in doing those kinds of things. You're not just killing time when you do it. Jesus might just show up while you're doing those things. That's the point. And if you're doing them with others, many of whom may not be involved in the village church, you might actually get an opportunity to introduce them to Jesus when he shows up, when you do what you know you can do while you wait for Jesus. The waiting church is not the paralyzed church. It's not the time-killing church. It's certainly not the wait-on-the-hilltop kind of church. It's the church that does what it knows what to do, 
but it's gifted to do because they know that Jesus will show up when you do it. That's the first thing we discover about the waiting church. But here's the thing. These guys went fishing, but they weren't just fishing. Not all of Jesus' first disciples were fishermen, but a bunch of them were. And fishing around Galilee was what most people understood, at least even if they weren't themselves fishermen. So Jesus used fishing to teach them about what it meant to minister. He told them to leave their nets so that they would, not that they would stop fishing, but that they would become fishers of men. They were to find and catch others who would then become disciples. You remember that story. So when Jesus shows up on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias, which is really the Sea of Galilee, he uses fishing once again to teach them, to teach them to how to become a fruitful church. He says to them, children, do you have any fish? Remember, they're 100 yards away. And they answered, no. And he said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now that's classic Jesus. And you know what? They've seen this movie before. Uh, this is, as Yogi Berra would say, deja vu all over again. Remember the story in Luke chapter 5? They'd been fishing all night. They caught nothing. And after Jesus had taught the crowd, he said to Peter and his entourage, let's go fishing. And Peter said, I don't think that's a good idea, Jesus. We've been fishing all night and we've caught nothing. Nothing's biting right now. Jesus said, let's go anyway. Unless that's the essence of the conversation. I may be reading a little bit between the lines there. But they do. And they catch a huge number of fish, so many that the nets were breaking. So here they are again. Jesus says, throw your nets on the other side. They think, well, that's silly. And don't you know that fish can swim under the boat, Jesus? It doesn't make any difference on what side of the boat you cast your net. But they do it. Seems vaguely familiar, isn't it? And then, yep, 153 fish jump into the net when they had tossed it on the other side of the boat. The Luke 5 passage is the occasion when Jesus taught them that from now on, they would leave their nets behind and they would be fishing for men. And now they were learning, at this last episode on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, how to fish for men. And here's the point. How to fish for men. Only go fishing with Jesus. Okay? Only go fishing with Jesus when you're fishing for men. And when I say fishing, I'm, I'm really not talking about the actual fishing of fish. I'm talking about fishing for human beings. Without Jesus, you catch nothing. You can do the work of the ministry, by the way, without Jesus. Plenty of people have proven that over and over again. But apart from Jesus, when you do, that, do it that way, you accomplish nothing. Nothing of eternal value. Nothing for the kingdom. Uh, pastors have had to learn this the hard way from time to time. Even if you do great things to get great crowds, even you get people excited about what you and your ministry is all about, even if you get people to come to your church in droves, if you do it in your own strength, with your own resources, it all comes to nothing. Nothing for eternity, nothing for the kingdom if you do it without Jesus. Fishing with Jesus means that you do what he tells you to do. Even if what he tells you to do is something that makes no sense to you. 
even if he tells you to drop the net on the other side of the boat, which is ridiculous if you're a fisherman. But if you do what he tells you, if you do the Lord's work in the Lord's way, if you're following the Lord's direction, then you do real work for the kingdom. And that's why they catch 153 fish. And the net this time, by the way, doesn't break, which John mentions explicitly, which means they don't lose any of their fish. Just like Jesus didn't lose any of those the Father had given to him, he will not lose any of those who come to him through the ministry if you do it with Jesus. Because when you do it with Jesus, when you fish with Jesus, under the direction of Jesus, you will be a fruitful church. So they drop the nets on the other side and they catch a multitude of fish and they recognize that it's Jesus on the shore and Peter jumps in the water to go see and embrace him. Must have been a wet hug. And then the others follow dragging the fish with them in the boat. And then what do they find? Well, they find Jesus feeding them. He's already got the fire going. He's, he's cooking some fish, probably picked a few up from Publix on the way over. He tells them to bring some of what they've caught and then they have the greatest fish fry ever. Because what Jesus does is that he supplies the church that he saves. He supplies the church that he saves. He never just saves them and then leaves them on their own, leaves them to fend for themselves. He answers the prayer that he has taught his disciples to pray when he said to pray this way, give us this day what? our daily bread, and he does. He supplies the church that he saves. Peter put it this way in his first or second epistle, he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And guess where Peter learned that? Well, he probably learned it in a number of places, but he probably had that reinforced strongly that very day on the shores of the Sea of Galilee as Jesus cooked breakfast for them. Jesus is the Lord of the church, and he supplies the church. So he's both the Lord of the church and the quartermaster of the church as well. And then the church eats together. Now, we ought not to diminish the value of the church eating together. We love to do that, don't we? Jesus gathers around the table on the shore of the Sea of Galilee with these seven disciples, and it wasn't just about food. It was about food, but it wasn't just about food. We don't know exactly what they said to each other, but we know that they enjoyed table fellowship together. And that's often the way it happens around food. We, we share with one another, where, where we tell stories with one another, where we laugh with one another, where we encourage one another, where we love one another around a table eating. Jesus is the Lord of the church at fellowship, in which we hold all things in common. That's what the word fellowship or koinonia means. And that's why we need to meet together. Jesus didn't just send them a Zoom invitation. He didn't tell them to tune into Galilee TV channel 13. He invited them to come to him in person. And when we can, we should. We should do this on Sundays. And why not more than once? We should do it on Wednesdays where we meet with one another and Jesus, by the way, in prayer. We should do this anytime we can, if we can. 
Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. We're grateful for television and for the technology that we have available to us. For those who are unable to get together and to be here, these are great blessings. And here at the Village Church, we have invested substantially since COVID started in our digital ministries. And you should tune into Channel 13 if you're in Shell Point or to the internet if uh, in our media page if you're not in Shell Point to see what we've got going on there. It's quite remarkable what kinds of resources we have online and on television. The teaching, the music is remarkable, but it's no substitute for getting together. Jesus gathers the church. It's the fellowship church and they eat and they share and they laugh, and they love. That's what you do when you get together. You can't hug a television. We at the Village Church are building a community of forgiveness, purpose, and hope in Jesus Christ, and that's why it's a community. We do it together, we do it with Jesus. All of that leads to John's exclamation in this story when he says, it is the Lord. It is the Lord in the waiting church, in the fruitful church, in the supplied church, in the fellowship church, we see the Lord. That's who we see. We see the Lord at work. We see the Lord at play. Do you not see the playfulness of Jesus in this episode? Hey, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. <laughs> And they do it. And can't you see Jesus grinning from ear to ear as he sees what happens with these people? It's hilarious, isn't it? He pulls their chains. You know, sometimes we get so serious that we miss the humor of Jesus. Some of us, I'm convinced, have been baptized in vinegar. You know, I talked to Pastor Don about doing that over again with water. So we see Jesus at work and we see Jesus at play. We see Jesus in his love for his children. We see Jesus enjoying the personalities of his children. We see Jesus caring for his lambs as a shepherd. We see Jesus who shows up in the waiting church, the fruitful church, the fellowship church, the church of Jesus Christ, we see the Lord. Do you see the Lord? Do you see him? He's here. Heavenly Father, help us to understand the very presence of Jesus in this place at this time and help us to experience him as we go about the things that we do while we wait for him to come and take us home with him or we wait for his return. Help us to be the church in this place during this time even as we wait for our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.